just because he, we, we kind of like, you know, he hoed him off over here to uh, our brother Antonio. That's when I met Antonio. It was actually Arturo was like, you've got to meet this guy. You've got to, you've got to sit down with this guy on the east side of town and learn what God is doing with him and with his church and everything. So I was like, yeah, sure, so let's make that happen. And uh, I got a hold of Chad, and I said, man, we need to go sit down with this guy. And we don't regret that at all. In fact, we really consider this church to be a partner church with us and uh, us with Antonio um, to, to serve one another as we serve the gospel. And, and it's a joy to have churches in Bakersfield that we know we can highly recommend to people that we often tell them on Sundays, if this isn't the place, let's, let us help you find the right place. And we have a specific set of churches, and, and they're very they're very few, to be honest with you. We want people to go to a place that we really, really have confidence that they're going to hear the gospel. And I don't just mean a gospel for the non-believer tagged on to the end of the sermon. I mean a gospel for the believer. Amen. One that we all need on a, on a every day basis. Um, but most of us kind of grew up with that kind of, you know, that kind of thing where we heard kind of good law. In other words, how to be a better you. Then at the end of the sermon we said, well, the non-believer needs Jesus. If you, if, right? But what a difference it makes when you're hearing how you need the grace of God um, as much as you needed it the first day you found it or he found you, Right? And that's the truth. We all we all knew that. Well, you guys, I know are in this series, and uh, I want to jump right in. Uh, don't want to waste too much time. I I know that uh, for me, I don't do as much preaching anymore. So you're just going to have to bear with me, okay? If I if I see just a little rabbit trailing, I'm already like that anyways. And somebody can tell you just from sitting for two hours at cafe, who you do that, but. Uh, I'm going to especially be like that in my preaching just because I'm an executive pastor. I, I do more admin stuff now, and I'm kind of a behind-the-scenes guy. And uh, that's fine with me. I like that. Uh, but, I, but I don't do as much sharing. Uh, but I, I do trust the Lord's Word is faithful, and then you guys are a group of people that obviously, you're not the fair, okay? <laughs> Which, that, for me, that's too expensive. The food is just too much. Um, right? Like a corn dog is like $20 or something. You know? Who wants that? You can just come and get the word for free, right? Much better than a corn dog. Okay. Well, we're going to look at a verse in, in uh, the book of Acts. And, and I want to talk to you tonight about being a beholding people. A beholding people. Now, I know that doesn't give you much to go on, and you're probably wondering, what does that mean, a beholding people? Um, and I'll tell you, I, we'll get there, okay? But I wanted, to, I wanted to talk to you about the fact that, one, there is a watching world, right? We all know that. There is a watching world. The New Testament is very clear to us about that. How our, how our works, how our behaviors, how our transformation is an adornment to the gospel. It adorns the gospel. It is not to be confused with the gospel, when I go out and, and, and do something nice for somebody, that is not the gospel, right? We understand the difference, the distinction there. But it does adorn the gospel, and there's a watching world. But we're also watching people. 
And, I, and I'll talk more about what that looks like here in a little bit. But I want to first take you this, this verse that we actually studied this Sunday. I'm kind of ripping off chat. Uh, we sat down at Starbucks well over a week ago. We do every week. And um, we spend Wednesdays kind of at Starbucks just because we can be amongst the watching world. I think it's pretty cool that we actually run into a lot of conversations. We always go to the same ones if we kind of get to know the employees and see a lot of the same people all that. And so we're sitting there and I told them, yeah, I'm going over to Antonio's church, the Reformation Bible Church. Jesus' church, sorry, Antonio. But uh, going over to, he's asked me to share. What are you going to share on, Jonah? Well, I mean, I oversee grace groups at our church, and this is my wheelhouse now, is talking about community and what it looks like to be engaged in, in healthy community with other believers. So I'm going to kind of go off on that. There's some things I'm thinking here, and I kind of shared them, and he goes, dude, like we're sharing the perfect area on Sunday, um, so you kind of need to, and he starts going through his stuff, and pretty soon I'm like, I am so ripping you off. So you can go online, you can listen to his sermon, and it's going to be way better than anything you're going to get probably with me. But, but uh, I do have some different angles I want to take with you on these things. But we were in this, this chapter verse, Acts chapter 4. Um, we're going to look at verses 32 through 35. We, we went to the end of the chapter with Barnabas there. But we're just going to look at these two verses, uh, verses 32 through 35. Here Luke writes, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Lord, we pray that your word would once again, with that double-edged sword of truth, bear witness to our souls that your spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds to know the truth of what you would reveal to each and every one of us through your word. God, we thank you for the, the, the beauty of your word. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it's effective and it's active. We thank you that it reveals to us your son, that, that we should behold Christ. And in that, we know, God, we, we, will, we will be transformed. We thank you, God, uh, for uh, the, the Church of Acts, and we thank you that, Lord, um, there are many ways that you would have us as a church to look and to receive and to gain wisdom and insight, even as though these things were unique, we know they are unique to their, their, their time and to the people that you were, you were doing in history, uh, redemptive history, you were working amongst these people. You are doing a unique thing even in our time as well. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, the two things I want to look at in looking at a beholding people is at first, that we see here, right, that Luke shows us 
that in this section of Acts 4, it's a very transitory section in the book of Acts. Uh, the, the church is about to explode. It is exploding in many ways. 3,000 in one day baptized, right? Back in chapter 2 and then on in chapter 3 and whatnot. 5,000 added. And there's some daily being saved. Up to this point, numbers could be around 10,000 believers in a very short amount of time. And the believers have gathered together to pray because their apostles, Peter and John, were thrown in prison, right? And they're praying and they're asking God. They're praying for boldness. If you look back at chapter 3, um, it tells us there in verse 28, as they're praying, um, they're, they're praying Psalm 2, they're praying the scriptures. I, I find it interesting what they pray. Uh, because for one of the things that we should be at, uh, what I want to talk to you about is unique people. We know that unique people pray. God has a, 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 a unique people who pray. And it's because they're his unique people that they pray. It's, it's what draws us to prayer with our Father, right? It's because he's made us his people, and his people pray. And in time of difficulty, in time of suffering, in time of imprisonment, it's interesting how they pray. They not only pray scripture in way of illuminating where they're at in redemptive history and calling back upon Psalm 2 to see how these, these events are unique and special to the book of Acts. They're coming together in fulfillment. They're seeing that what was promised is being fulfilled before their very eyes. Now, we're not the we as they're praying here, because that is unique. That's something that is unique to them. And that they are actually fulfilling much of what's been happening and promised uh, in the Old Testament. We're going to see some of that even in the verses we read. But here they're praying um, Psalm 2, and then they move on to pray, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. They call upon God's sovereignty, don't they? They're saying, God, everything, there's not anything that occurs that you have not planned. And I don't know about you, but when I pray in the midst of my suffering, my prayers often reflect my confusion, not the truth about God. Usually my prayers go something like this. What is going on? Why is this happening? God, can you make it stop? I mean, so we're praying. But that's not their prayer. They're, they're praying, Lord, everything that has happened is according to your plan. And then they move on from that and say, verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Man, isn't that the truth as well? They're not only praying towards God's sovereign care over their their lives, but they're praying towards the fact that God has appointed those things such that they might preach the word, such they might use it for his glory. And that's also something I forget often in my prayers, because I'm so concerned about me. But they weren't a people that were caught up in themselves. The uniqueness of these people is they were focused upon what God wanted what God already had. And, and, and that's how we should... Do you pray like that? Do I pray like that? I mean, that's a real challenge, isn't it? 
Or do we pray, Lord, take it away? Well, they didn't pray that. And I would bet this, I, I would be willing to say they probably have more right to pray take it away than most of us have with our suffering problems, don't they? But then we go on, and we see that from a unique people, and, I, and, and again, I'm asking the question here, how? How are they unique? Well, let's look back at verse 34. Um, now, the full number of those who believed, they're, they're unique, one, because they believe. You, you realize that's unique? And that makes you a unique person in the way that God has appointed you unto belief. That, that, now, now, let's just think about that a second. It's not, think back about the people that you know in your life who don't believe. I think back to my high school days and buddies I ran with. And man, a lot of them had the same Jesus stories I had, maybe even more. I mean, I didn't have a lot of church growing up. I didn't know a whole lot. I mean, if you asked me a test, I could fill out the basics. Why did Jesus die for your sins? I mean, I could do that. But I, I, I was not, I mean, I would have said, I think almost everybody in this town, being at Bakersfield, will check the box. I'm saved. I'm a Christian. You know, maybe even I go to church. Whatever that means and looks like. But, but what does it mean to, to believe? To be marked out, to be given faith in such a way that it's not because I'm smarter than Joe was. Or it's not because I'm smarter than Todd and Richard, my two best friends in high school, or the other guys I hung out with. It's not because somewhere along the line I was running down the path, partying, doing the things I was doing, and all of a sudden I just went, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting that this is ruining me, and I think I ought to stop. It wasn't that. I was, I was enjoying it, and the pleasures of my flesh, and an enemy towards God. I was enjoying the fact that I was living in such a manner. There was really nothing smart about me, but, but God called me to believe, and he gives me faith, and my eyes are turned, one, upon the knowledge of sin here, and the knowledge of his holiness, and drives me to Christ. I mean, the, the hound dog of heaven the Holy Spirit, revealing these truths to me in such a unique way that it was unlike anything I had ever experienced at that point. Oh, I heard about Jesus. I, I went to church. I was a kid who sat in my aunt's church my whole life. And I'm, I, I don't doubt that the seeds were planted. And God was at work in gracious ways towards me, in ways I could not see preserving even for that moment. But man, when he turned the lights on you guys, it changed everything. I mean, it's not like from dimness to a little bit more light. It's from blindness I see. Death I hear. You, 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 that, that, that's not just an improvement upon some quality that you already had. That's being given an ability of something you did not have at all. You were dead in your sins and transgressions. But for the mercies of God, He made you alive in Christ. The other believers. And they were of one heart and soul. Suke. 
One heart and soul, one heart and mind. Your, your Bible might say mind. It's a unique thing to be made of one heart, one mind. With somebody else. Um, this, this is unique beyond just, hey, we're really good buddies now. We're really close to that guy. But this goes far beyond that. This is a unique thing. And it's interesting that we live in this world that's really trying to find this in their own way, aren't they? It's as though they crave it and they run after it, but they just can never get there. It's like the longings to go back to something. There's a sense, of an echo of something they once had, but they no longer have. And they, they, they crave community. They crave it. That's why Starbucks does so well, right? That's why, any guy on that next door, that app, that thing that's called Next Door, it's a new it's a new thing that you get on and it locates where you live and the area of town you live in, and then it puts you in contact with people only in your little area of Bakersfield. And so I live in Park Stockdale, old Park Stockdale, and uh, so only my neighbors in Park Stockdale, uh, we are on this board, like kind of like Facebook, and uh, and so everybody's on there constantly, like. Make sure to put out your blue trash can on Tuesday. Make sure, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a guy, a stranger, walking around the neighborhood. Uh, uh, after, and today, I, I need an electrician. Can anybody give me an electrician? It's really interesting. In some ways, it's also like oddly, uh, it gives you paranoia. Because you, you see crime in your neighborhood that you never saw before that came along. And now you read it every day, and every day somebody's telling you their car got broken into, and there's a strange man in the neighborhood, and I'm like, I'm buying a shotgun. I don't even own weapons, but I am buying weapons now, because I'm just like, it's all around me. Uh, all because of next door. I mean, there are all these ways that we are seeking out to know one another, to know our neighbor, to, to engage, and we do it. But we do it in such false ways, don't we? We use things like Facebook and whatnot. And they give us a false sense of knowing those others. But we don't. I mean, even if it's family members, I see their kids, I see my cousin's kids, but I don't call them, I don't write them. I don't really ever connect them. Every once in a while you give a like. Like, how jacked up is that? A, a thumb up, you know. I had cousin. I haven't talked to him for two years, but thumbs up. It's really odd. But they didn't have that. They had a, a very authentic way of, of knowing one another. But it was very unique too. But it goes on and tells us even why that was unique. Because what? Not only was there no one needy amongst them. But it tells us that they sold, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold. I want you to look at a few verses with me. 1 John, turn there, chapter 3, 1 John, chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. And I want to read these. And if you're asking the question, what is real Christian community look like? Well, let's listen to John. Chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love. 
By the way, if you go throughout the book of 1 John, just note every time it says, by this we know. And then he moves on to say, well, we know. By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. How that's what you think about that. Do you love your brother? Now, I'm talking about, this isn't like a general audience of next door, the guy down the street. This is the church. This is each other. This is look across the aisle. And, it, and, and Chad was saying to this Sunday, you're really saying here, you're my people. You're my people. Now, we are used to doing that in a particular way with our family. Most of you are used to that in a deep sense within your family. Um, I, I, my wife is Hispanic. We've been married 26 years. One of the first things I loved and enjoyed when I was dating her was the sense of familia, right? You know, community. I saw it, I mean, I had a broken home I grew up in with a single mom, and I hadn't really known what deep family can really look like. Uh, we're all a bunch of Okies, you know, we came over to the dust bowl. And uh, so we have our own sense of family too, but it's very, very different. It was like, it was interesting uh, to go to her family in Delano and see the grandmothers and the children and the, I mean, her grandma and her aunts. And I mean, it was just really cool. And they became my family. They brought me in, Juanito, I think they called me, and Pepito and all the other <laughs> Spanish words I had to pick up suddenly. Um, and so, uh, and, and, uh, and then my, mo- my mother-in-law is half Filipino, too. So we get that side in there a little bit, too. So we're, my, my poor kid, they're Heinz 57, man. They're, you know. My mother's been doing our family tree on my dad's side. My mom has been doing that for me. My dad passed away, and I didn't have any clue of really. They divorced when I was three. He was an alcoholic. I didn't see him until I was like 22, and he passed away of liver disease. I didn't really know any of my dad's sites. So my, my mom gathered up all the information here over the last month and traced back through my great-great-grandpa John Franklin um, happens to come from his mother's side, the Franklins, traced back seven grandfathers to uh, James Franklin. James Franklin. His dad was Josiah Franklin, and Josiah Franklin was the father of Benjamin Franklin. So I just found out that I come down through the line of, of Benjamin Franklin. I didn't inherit any. <laughs> My son, the engineer at Cal State, he got a little bit of Benjamin, but not, not me. But we, we love that stuff, huh? Because it gives us a sense of connection, a sense of, of origin and and where we come from and whatnot. We long for that. But this is something way different. If, if, if your family here on earth is like that, 
then what is it to look across the aisle with a blood-bought brother in Christ, sister in Christ, and say, you are my own. Well, John would write, by this, we know love if you love one another. And how? In such a way that you're actually willing to give up your life. And he who sees his brother in need, he's talking about practical things. Here, he's not talking about ambiguous, you know, he's talking about real things. And he says, you see them in need, and you pass by like, oh, he's got it. Well, you wouldn't do that with your earthly brother. Why do you do it with your Christian brother? But we do it. I mean, I do it. Anybody guilty of that one? Yeah. But we're told here, by this we know love. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. This church have gathered that. How? How? John 15, 12. Look what Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John about our caring love for one another. John 15, 12. 13 says this. This is my commandment. By the way, First John, what does it say? By this we know God, that we love and obey His commandments. That's in First John. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, can you, can you just gather that for a second? The selflessness of that kind of love? That's on such a level that um, it's hard for me to even gather what that looks like. That, that he who, um, Philippians 2, did consider being equal with God as something to hold on to but became a man. Think about that just for a second. When we talk about the humiliation of Christ, we're not just talking about when he's on the cross hanging there. Wow, that's humiliating. That's kind of how we think of humiliation. To be shamed. Okay? But when theologians talk about the humiliation of Christ and the glorification or exaltation of Christ, on the humiliation, they're actually talking from the moment of the incarnation, from the moment he takes on flesh. Because, think about this, the, the, the all-knowing, ever-present, everlasting God steps into temporality of flesh and suffering. And the minute he takes on flesh, there is such an immense humiliation that that can't even, we can't even put that into what we're thinking. And it says here that we ought to think of the way we love one another in the same way that God thinks about stepping into Becoming a man, taking on flesh, taking on death in your place. For you deserve that. He lived the life you should have lived, and he died the death that you should have died. And I don't know about you, but man, that stings when I hear this commandment come from the words of the lips of my Savior. Do you love one another this way? Greater love is no one than this. That someone laid down his life for his friends. Guys, let's just be frank. 
I don't even want to lay down an hour. And most of you don't either. I, I, I struggle to get to, when I hear the call comes, it's like, hey man, this guy needs some help moving. I hate moving. I, I hate, hate moving. I've moved so many times, I guess because I'm tall and big, people, it's like basketball. They just assume you love it and play it. I could never play basketball. And I don't like moving either. I've moved so many times, and I hate it more every time. It's like Bakersfield Summers. I hate the more I live through them. Um, but that's, come on, come on. We're not even talking about that. We're talking about, are you willing to lay down your life to forget yourself? It's the power of self-forgetfulness. But how do you do that? How do you do that? Because again, I struggle, and I don't know about you, and I think it's true, you struggle to give up even the most little things, don't you? Really. But this is not not a level where they're sharing one another's goods. It's to say, we are family. You come in my house, it's your house. It's not my house, I'll let you borrow. It's our house. It's our car. This isn't my car, it's the church. It's our church's car. Wow. So it's unique, you guys. And he goes on to say, in verse 35, that they took on and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had they need. Now, we sometimes read this, and here's, here's what I want to just give you a warning, and stop before I go on kind of um, hammering you, because I hope it does. I mean, I hope you get a sense of, man, that's, this is not a project that's put together like communism. This is not state or social in the sense that it's organized by government. This is not something even that the church leaders necessarily are putting together and mandating it of you. Okay? Well, be careful there. This isn't socialism. This isn't that. This is an expression. It's an expression. And so, it's a watching world watching the church and so being affected by it, now here's what's interesting, in contrast to this is chapter 4 of Acts and what's happening there. Ananias and Sapphira. And it's interesting that when you go back there to Acts chapter 4, check this out with me, um, look what it says, um, I'm sorry, Acts 5, I said 4, Acts 5. I want you to look at this where they're being rebuked for this. And it's in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your what? Your heart. Why has he filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did, did it not remain your own? Now he wants it. He said, this was your stuff. This was your stuff. But your heart, your heart, has lied before God. And I, I find that interesting. Because when we get back to the, these passages, in contrast, is, is in juxtaposition, right? You know, the, putting next to one another so you can compare. And in the book of Acts, it says that Luke is designing and writing these in such a way that he wants us to look at these two. He wants us to look at two kingdoms and two hearts and two kinds of people. 
the selfish heart that always possesses its own stuff and lies to who? God. The, the concern is there isn't what they're doing here in way of actually giving up their stuff. That's your own stuff. You see? It's an interesting wordplay. Well, it, it, it's almost like it's almost like uh, Peter and what Luke is putting here is um, he's kind of reflecting back on what's just happened. They treat their stuff like it's not their own stuff. This was your own stuff in your heart and life in the Holy Spirit. See, these are heart issues, and so we don't want to run towards behaviors. There's a real danger in that, isn't there? And so when Christians run after behaviors, you start policing each other. Hey, brother, man, that guy talked about this on Wednesday night, and you're not really acting like that. Okay, so you run into the thing, that, the behavior, and we're not addressing the issues of the heart. And that's not what's happening here in the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts is showing us something unique about a unique people with a unique heart. There's something unique. And so from a unique people, I want to talk to you about a unique love. The, the, why their love is unique. And it tells us there in verse 32, now the full number of those who believe were of what? One heart and, you could say it again, one soul. Okay? One heart and one soul. How? How is that true? Because I actually, I, I would say to you that's actually impossible. On human level, from sinners, because we all are that, in a broken world with broken hearts, that is impossible. I would say to you, Ananias and Sapphira are quite the norm. Quite the norm. Because how many of you would agree how easy it is to do something in such a way that from outwardly people see you doing it? And so you're fulfilling the requirements, right? You're checking the boxes, but your heart is lying before who? God. God sees the heart of man. Think about that. That's scary. Because I can't even know my heart well enough to know when it's lying to God. I am so well lied to myself. And only of the Holy Spirit can I even know the truth about my own heart. Think about that. What a weird thing to be spun in, huh? Like a twilight zone or something. You're so dazed in the lie, right? That you don't know you're lying even to yourself. Now, come on, think about have you ever seen that happen to somebody? Maybe as a parent, you're sitting with your kids, and you actually, as the more you get into it, and you're like, I'm trying to help you here. I'm trying to help you see. You have, like, I have two in college. I have my 10-year-old. And uh, she, she came with dad tonight, so she didn't do anything wrong. I'll pick on the other two. But yeah, you ever try to walk them through some lesson in life thing or whatever, you're trying to get them to understand the, the mess they've kind of made for themselves and you're trying to help gain wisdom in that. And they can like, I didn't do anything wrong. And then the Pharisee and dad just pops out like, what are you talking about? You can't see, you know. And then I have to remember how many times, oh, every week, almost, well, daily, I fail to see myself as I really am 
In fact, I think by the grace of God, every one of us in this room, we don't actually see ourselves as we really are before a holy God. Because I think it would absolutely ruin us. If God let that flood in all at once, if he pulled the hand of grace away to let you see in the mirror what you would really see, if you've known anything with a struggle of depression, you are often seeing the brokenness of the world as it really is. And even to some degree, even less than it really is. When you see depressed people, sometimes they're seeing grief without hope, but grief is true, it's brokenness, and they see it, and they see it ever so clearly as if to put a magnifying glass on it. And the Bible doesn't remove grief, it doesn't remove struggle, it coincidingly sets it alongside hope, so we have hope and grief. But you know what, when you, when you run into somebody who's in darkness, enclosed in their own suffering, whether it be sin or depression or, or somebody else's sin against them or whatever that might be. In pastoral counseling, it's a fascinating thing because it's as if they're really seeing the heart of grief. And you have to be their own, you have to be their scavenger of hope. Our biblical counselor, Jason, that's what he called it. You have to be their scavenger of hope. You have to be the one to come along and show them the grace of God for their life. How many times has that happened to you? Where it takes a brother or sister in Christ to, to reveal the love of God to you by how? By encouraging you with the grace of God in a time you can't see it. So my point in this is just to say that in, in this great grace, this one heart, one mind, is something God reveals apart from what we can do of our, for ourselves. We can't do this on our own. They have one heart, one mind. And what it tells us about that is it goes on to describe verse 33 again. Let's look back at that. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I want to stop there. If you're asking the question, how? How did this come about? How could they have such oneness of heart and mind? How could they see their sin and turn to a God and then turn to others for help? There's no way apart from the Holy Spirit acting upon them. And then this is most true when the Spirit and the Word are active in the church. When the Spirit and the Word are preached, the Spirit uses the Word of God to affect power, change, life. Sozo in the Greek. Sozo. Life upon the heart of dead people. Resurrection. Notice how Luke hammers in on this. There's resurrection. They are preaching the resurrection. Now I want you to notice a couple other things. Look at back at Acts uh, 4.29. It tells us there's something interesting. Up ahead in 4.29. And now as they were praying, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You see, these were people of the block. They were people of the book, and the book was in their belly. They were in the Word, and the Word was in them. And the Spirit of God was making alive in the church things that are impossible, I would say plastic, manufactured in a worldly sense. The world could go after it. The world could even put it up on Facebook. The world does its best at it. In common grace, the world gets to taste it, but only so much. 
It's not at the same level. It's not at the same oneness that this is speaking here. But yet that they were speaking the word of boldness. This is what's happening out of their prayer. The boldness is being, the, the word is being shared. And then Acts 4.31 at the end of that section, look what it says. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, Antonio was saying we both share kind of our charismatic past. Like I don't even, I don't, I don't even show people my cards on that one. But you know, we we really do. We went back and like we share, and I'm sure a lot of us in here share that, especially from Bakersfield. Now, I want to say, I mean, in the true sense of charismata, which is really something of the Holy Spirit, He does alive in the church. Oh, we are charismatic on that sense, but. The old ways love to look at the first half of this verse. They were filled and shaken. And we would have stopped and just laid ourselves on that, right? Well, that really is something in the way of what's unique to the apostles and what God is doing in redemptive history. We don't go back to the Exodus and see the waters part and then run out to Kern River and go, God, do the water, part the river. We understand just naturally when we read that, that that is something unique and special to events that occurred for Moses and the people of God, Israel. Now, we also would say that it's teaching us something unique about God. And we can all receive of that. But we don't go out and check Park Rivers. Well, why do we read the book of Acts as though we're living uh, in this time and we're these people? And he's and it's no, no. It's, it's unique. It's unique. It's good. It's good when God does stuff unique, because the world would be very bland and all of history would be pretty flat if God made accessible every single event that we read in this book. This unique, special revelation that He is designed such that we could know him uniquely from any other book by this book, and therefore place these unique events in a unique time in history with unique men. There's no more apostles. We're not, we're not stapling on more writing on the back of our Bible. But people say, thus saith the Lord, as we used to all say, you realize that those words carry weight and they're unique. That if they were true, if they were true, that today, and we're hearing God speak, direct, unmediated, apart from his word, do you know you'd have to carry a stapler? And you'd have to stick it on the back of your Bible. And you'd have to treat it in the same way that this has been treated. But a church that, I won't say the name, but around the corner, and it's very, very large, and I used to be a youth pastor there. Years and years ago. But I'll just say that. The pastor stood up later after I wasn't there any longer. And, I, and it was cool because, you know, the iPhone, I tapped it on like a live service. And I was watching it as I was going to get my kids from the youth group. And I stuck it on, and it popped up. And, it, and the man stood on stage, and, and he held the Bible up. And he said, you know, listen, you just all need to know, the only difference between me and the guys that wrote this book is that people wrote down what they said. Wow. Wow. You should run if you ever hear that. Sorry. Rabbit trails. And so on. But this is a unique love. 
It's a unique love. I want you to see why it is unique, though. It's a unique love to unique people in a unique time period that we can't actually gain and, and take something from, but it is unique. And here's what's interesting about the unique aspects of what's happening right here is a fulfillment of what has been promised in the Old Testament. In fact, turn there with me. Deuteronomy 15, verses 4 through 6. Deuteronomy 15, verse 4 through 6. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you. Now, by the way, invokes a covenantal idea. The Lord, he is holy, he will bless you. And you will be his people. And you will be given a land. And there will be no poor. Because you will be a, a rich people. Now, don't go there. For some of you, you're like, oh, cash in my pocket. That's not. But there is something uniquely rich about it and fulfilled in the way of what God gives us. And, and we're going to look at that in a second. For the Lord your God will bless you, and as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Now, to the physical covenant of Moses, his covenant, we see there are parts to this that we cannot borrow. We're not going into some real land called Canaan and cattle and blah, blah, blah. Fruit that's this big. But we can say that there's no poor amongst us. And we can say that he will bless all nations. And we can say he will make us a new people in a new age. It's been inaugurated because the king has come. And there's a promise here. There's a promise. As you go there. The Lord will make this happen. You say, wow, that's kind of interesting. It's similar because these people will say, it's exact words that are being used there. And then Ezekiel 36, look there with me real quick. Speaking of the new covenant promises that we now have as believers. Ezekiel 36, verse 24 through 27. I will take you from the nations. What happened in the book of Acts in the very beginning? Representatives from all different nations sitting there, right, in the city of Jerusalem, gathered together, hearing their language in their own tongues. The Lord will gather you from the nations. He'll gather you from all the countries. He'll bring you into your own land. And then what? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Look over real quick with me at Jeremiah 31. Of this new heart that God will put in his people that they will what? In turn, love one another the way that God has loved us. Look at these, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31. 
back. Jeremiah 31, 31. Speaking again of the new covenant. This new, this new age is coming. This new this new thing to my people and the Lord makes good on his promises for they're all true they're all yes and amen not one shall fail Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah 31 31 says this we get there behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now look uh, at 32... Jump over to Jeremiah 32, 36 real quick. Continuing on with the idea of this new people with a new heart and a new, a, a new covenant that God will, will ratify and it is permanent. It will not fail. He says this in verse uh, 36, chapter 32. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city... Of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God. I will give them what? One heart. Does that sound familiar? I will give them one heart and what? One way or one mind. I will be their God and I will give them. I will give them. You notice this isn't something they give themselves. But I will give them. I will do this, the Lord says. They shall be my people. That they may what? Fear me forever. For their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, beautiful, that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will, oh, what a great promise that is. Now just land and soak in that one first. I will not stop doing good to them. Wow. What do you deserve, though? What do I deserve? Nothing of his goodness. Complete exile. Divorce. But he calls us back. He makes us new. He, he welcomes us to this everlasting love of God. I will make with them an everlasting love. I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. We'll see the great grace that we, we look back. Look back there, Dax. And I just want to wrap it up here. Here's the deal. Because as the word is preached and the testimony of the resurrection of this new covenant that they will be a people by belief, by faith, they'll be brought in and given all the benefits from a benefactor. And they receive of that and it says that then what? 
there was, um, excuse me, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace. Great grace. Now, this isn't saying grace, kind of grace, like you pray at your dinner table kind of grace. This is great grace. This is great grace. This is unlike any kind of grace you've ever received. This is life-giving, resurrecting of dead rebels. To know him and to love him and to be called his forever. Think about that. And in Corinthians, Paul picks up on this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I just want to give you this verse, and then I'll be done. And my wife always says, don't do that. Because then when you're not done, people get really irritated. Because you keep saying you're going to be done, and then you're not done. Well, that's why I don't preach much anymore, I guess, right? But here, and and then I will be done then, because I think I've already ran way over on time. But I want you to look at chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, of the New Covenant. Because now Paul's picking up on what we looked at in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And now Paul grabs hold of the promises of that new covenant. And he's talking about Moses saying, hey, of Israel, those of the non-believing Israel, they could not see. And why? Because they had a veil. And he uses Moses as a model of that. He, like a veil, under the old covenant, those who were in unbelief. The veil can be lifted. The grace can come upon, and here's how he says, look at verse, uh, man, I, I, I want to read a little bit here, but look at verse 4 real quick. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Please, warning, don't attempt to manufacture the kind of community we just read about in Acts and throughout the New Testament on your own. Because we cannot claim sufficiency as though these things come from us, but they come from God. And, and, and he calls upon the church for when those things take place in the hearts of his people. And you know what? The, 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 the really tough thing about this, whether it be your family, your kids, or you, or this church, you're waiting upon God. And you're praying. And you're saying, Lord, you are the sovereign king of the heart. And only you can change a heart such a way it can't lie before you. Only you can open the eyes to see, and the blind eyes to see, the deaf ears to hear. But look at what Paul says, so glorious. And jump on down to verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Were they bold? Yeah, they were bold. And they were praying they'd be bold. And they were bold. And how do we know it? Because they preached the word. They testified of these things. The grace of God. Not like Moses. But don't be bold just by attempting to obey commandments in your own strength. No, no, no. That would be Israel. You don't need Jesus for that. And so your conversation, you want to be watchful of how you converse with one another. Does your conversation look like you're encouraging each other in such a way that Jesus isn't giving in it? Well, then, then, then you're Moses. I mean, you might as well just go back, right? But no, 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 no. We have this hope, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. 
For to this day, as Paul's writing Corinthians, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over unbelieving Israel's hearts. You see, see, back then, the veil could be lifted. Right now, the veil could be lifted. Here in our churches, the veils can be lifted. In our children, the veil can be lifted. But there's only one way to the veil being lifted. The veil was torn and made away. There's only one way for the veil to be lifted. And, and here Paul says, through Christ, it is taken away. It is lifted. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, now you notice it's the same verbiage as you use, mind and heart here. Minds are hardened. Hearts are dark. As Romans 1 says that we're all under that state while we're in sin. We're, we're darkened in mind and heart. Right? We're foolish. We're self-deceived. We're liars. Yeah, all that. But yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. And we all... Oh, this is the verse. I love this verse. You have Bible verses like that. I love this verse. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding, beholding, we're a beholding people. See, this is different. This isn't religious manufacturing of good behaviors. Because you could go join any occult to get that. You can borrow the name of Jesus, because they will. What is uniquely different about those who behold in faith understand the glory of God in Christ revealed. He is the beholder of all God is in revelation of his own what? Holiness. Now when I say holy, and you say holy, we often think of only that justice part of God, but the manifestation of God's holiness is beholding all that God is in Christ, in His Word. And it's in beholding that we behold His goodness and His loving kindness and His patience and His forbearance and His long-suffering. We behold that I'm a rebel, but He is He's a, a soul winner. He takes the hearts of rebels, hard hearts, stony hearts, haters of God, Paul calls us. Haters of God. How many of you checked up for that one? I didn't, but I was. You could look at my life and see it. You could look at the way I treated other people. And if I treated them kindly, it wasn't because I truly loved them and was seeking to honor and please God. It's because I wanted something from you. My heart can still go there, apart from the veil being lifted, and apart from faith. And so and so he is. Great We with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed. I, I'll say it this simply. You ready? And beholding, you're becoming. Beholding, you're becoming. You can't become without beholding. 
But if you're beholden, you cannot not be becoming. You have to. Because you are setting your eyes and the gaze of your soul upon God. And when you see Him, you will be made like Him. And while there's a distinction between those two things, we cannot separate them. They go together. The people of God were told to behold the brazen serpent in the wilderness. They only had to look, and the poison was nullified. In beholding, they were becoming healed. And here we're beholding in the glory of Christ, God. And in that, we're being transformed into what? The same image. That, that harkens back to Genesis. We're image bearers. We were made to be like him, to reflect his goodness, his righteousness, his love. And, and so, from one degree of glory to another, thank goodness we get that part too, because I haven't arrived. I'm not up there yet, right? It's to one degree of glory to another. From faith to faith, we are... We are being transformed. And the beauty of that. So I would just say this, church. Who, what, what is the uniqueness of the love? It's the love of Christ. It's not your love. It's not even really how we love each other. As much as it is the glorious love of God in Christ, and beholding that, and, and, and then bringing that to others to behold. You see, the things that we often try to look for in programs, and that's what I kind of do at Socrates. I'm kind of the, we call it the trellis guy. You have kind of the, 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 you have the vine, and you have the trellis, right? And the trellis is just the, the background work, you know, programs, and the part of it you kind of have to do when you start growing as a church. But a trellis is not the vine. And you know, the trellis doesn't grow the vine. It supports it. But it doesn't do the work of growing that vine. The Lord in his work grows the vine. Right? And so if we start doing trellis building, here's how it looks for churches that do that. We want the vine to grow. We want people's lives to change. So we go to a seminar. And we learn how to build good trellises. And we build a good trellis, and then the vine doesn't grow. We go, what's wrong with the vine? I better go to another trellis building seminar. And we go to another seminar, and we look at a better trellis, and we think that trellis will make it better, and it doesn't get any better. And we do that with our kids. Parents, some of you are doing that with your kids, man. If I just read the right book and the right formula, and da-da-da-da-da, preach the gospel to them. Show them Christ at all costs. When they blow it, when they fail, when they sin before you, you can not only relate to them because you're a sinner, and you blow it, and you fail, and I hope that you're showing them what good repentance looks like, by the way. I hope that you're saying, I fail the holiness of God. And we could both go to our knees and pray, and I can seek the Lord as a perfect father. And I do that even with my son. One time we prayed, and I said, I'm an imperfect father with an imperfect son. And we're praying right now to a perfect father with a perfect son. And I, we want to behold you. You're a good God. And you love us in spite of us. And it causes us to grow in you. And that's all we're begging for, God. And there's ways that we can seek that appropriately. And even train our children up in it. But if you moralize them with a bunch of to-dos and behaviors, you'll get nothing. Oh, actually, here's what's even scarier. You may get something. In fact, parent, you may even get what you want. 
And that's even scarier. Because they've adapted like Ananias and Sapphira what they did without really taking care of the heart. So let's pray. Lord God, we are, as a people, unique called to Christ and to know Him and to behold Him, and that Your Holy Spirit does that work within us and shows us Him and unites us to Him, makes us at one with Jesus and bears forth love, the love of God and the love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we thank You that You are making a people. You're a 